Loneliness is not a new phenomenon. Loneliness entered the world the moment that that first man and woman took a bite of that fruit and sin entered the world. With sin came loneliness. It's not a new thing, but the word that I hear being used about loneliness more and more is the word epidemic. That's the word actually that scientists and medical professionals and sociologists are are putting to, to this problem. Epidemic. Loneliness is at epidemic proportions. In fact, the United Kingdom just recently did something that may be the first in the world, but you know how countries, they have like ministers of defense and finance and education, all these departments. They established a minister of loneliness because they saw how loneliness was ravaging their communities and had all sorts of ill effects. And so they've actually created a department to try to address this problem in their nation. The stats are really uh, incredible. Uh, and these are pre-COVID stats, so I, I think it's only worse now. Half of Canadians, according to statistics, uh, report often feeling alone. Four in ten say that they wish they had someone to talk to, but don't have anybody to talk to about things happening in their life. Um, stats find that women under the age of 35 are the loneliest group, uh, that the percentage of people living alone quadrupled, went up fourfold since 1951, that the number of people who feel they have no one to talk to has tripled since I was a boy in the mid-80s. Six in ten people in Britain report that their closest companion is their pet. Do you know lonely people? You know, our community is filled with lonely people. And we've never lived in an age where there were more people and we were more connected because we got social media. And, and yet, um, in the f- spite of the fact that we're surrounded by people, uh, so many feel alone. And maybe this morning you're someone who would say, I count myself in that 50% of people who feels alone. The Surgeon General of the United States just recently in the last weeks um, gave some startling statistics. This was reported in a New York Times article in the uh, the last few weeks. Uh, Loneliness is as deadly as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, like medically. It's more lethal than six alcoholic drinks a day and more dangerous for your health than obesity. Loneliness is a problem. And researchers have jumped on the bandwagon and the pharmaceutical community is working on a pill to... uh, (laughs) A pill for everything. Who knows? Maybe a pill will help. But I don't know. There's got to be better solutions than pills for the problem of loneliness. Um, In fact, I think God does have a solution for that problem, and it's a solution called community. Community. You know, at the beginning of the story, of God's story, at the beginning of the Bible, when God makes all that is, and He calls everything He made good, there was one thing He said was not good. He looked at it, and it was not good. And what was not good was that man was alone. And you probably know those words. At the, at the beginning there of the Bible, Genesis 2.8, the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone, because at this point there was one. He said, I will make a helper suitable for him. So He made another person, a woman, to accompany the man. Some people have just understood that word, helper, companion, however that's translated in our Bible. Like maybe, maybe God has in mind like a sidekick, like Batman needed a Robin, right? It's not a word that has any sort of sense of subordination 
in there. In fact, it's a word in Hebrew, Ezer, that almost always is a reference to God Himself as helper. God Himself as companion. So God said, I need to make someone else who will be to, to this person who is alone divine help. And so He made another person. And then we hear a little bit about marriage, but you know what? That's actually not what God just has in mind in that verse. He's not just talking about marriage. He's talking about community. Marriage is one very important form of community, but, but God, I think, in this statement, he's, he's really talking more broadly just about the need for community, that God created us not to be alone, but to have others with whom we can share, who can see, with whom we can carry burdens, others present in our life, Jesus was a single man, never married. Paul was a single man, never married. But they were no different. It was not good either for them to be alone. And so, and so God made and has called us into community because God knows that we thrive in the context of com community. So when you read that verse, don't just think marriage. That's a verse about marriage. It's not. God is saying it's not good for people to not have community. In fact, all of the wedding verses I use, marriage verses I use at weddings, none of them really are about marriage. You know, there's that 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love about love, love is patient, love is kind, you know, it does not boast, it does not envy, keeps no record of wrongs, so on and so forth. We, we read that at weddings, but it's not about marriage. It's about community within, primarily within the church. Then there's that other verse that I'll often use in weddings. It comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Maybe you've heard it. It talks about ropes. It's a little odd. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help up the other. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. A little aside here. You see that pause? And when you see Rusty pause, you're going, is it? He's, he's making this calculation. Is this a good idea for him to say or not? And sometimes it wasn't a good idea, and I only find that out after the fact. Anyway, I, I remember being at Providence College years ago. We built a Quincy, me and a buddy, Andy. I don't want to give his last name to implicate him. And we built this Quincy, you know, you just like pile a snow, pack it down, you hollow it out. He and I were going to sleep in this Quincy. The only, the only time I ever had to spoon with another man was that night because we were there receiving bags and it was so cold in this Quincy. We woke up in the middle of the night. We said, we're not going to tell anyone else about this, but we shared body heat because it was the only way to survive. All right. So I'm sorry if that's a little detail I should have kept to myself, but that, just, that memory just flashed in my mind. Yeah, if too light, how will they keep warm? Can one keep warm alone? I mean, we, yeah, we'll, we'll keep moving. Though, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and yet a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Talking about how two is better than one, and that's a fairly simple idea, right? If one falls, another one can help them up. And then he says something interesting about this third strand, this mysterious third strand. He doesn't go on to elaborate. And in weddings, we'll often say, what's the third strand? It's God. If you weave God into your marriage, into that relationship, it, adds, it provides added strength. And you know what? That's true. I think that is a reference to God. I think that's a way of the writer saying spiritual community is the strongest form of community. 
But that's not talking about marriage. That's just talking about community. And that's just plain science. If you have two cords that are woven together in a rope, it's twice as strong as one. But if you add a third strand, the strength of that rope grows exponentially, seven times stronger if you add a third strand. So I think this is a little statement. Community is great. Spiritual community is the most powerful form of community. And we're going to see why in this message. So all that to say, there's a problem. It's called loneliness. And I think God's solution to that problem is the church. Is the church. You know, if there is an area where we can minister to the needs of our community, because, hey, we live in a pretty affluent community, don't we? I mean, sometimes it's hard to wonder, how do we make a difference? Oh, I don't see homeless people wandering around. I don't see a lot of poverty. Hey, there's stuff going on behind closed doors for sure. I see a lot of two-car garages, three-car garages, a lot of nice vehicles. What does it look like for us to be the church? You know, we live in a community full of people that are desperately lonely. And some people in this room are desperately lonely. I believe that God's solution to the problem of loneliness is His people. It is the church. You know, our mission as a church is simply to help people experience new life in Christ, express new life to one another, and extend new life to those who don't yet know God. That's how we've defined our mission. It's all about relationship. Helping people grow in a relationship with God, with one another, that's us, the church, and with the world. And so in this series of messages over eight weeks, we're going through these four values. We think if we practice these four values, we will be successful in this mission that God has given to us. Those four values are that we want to be people dedicated to wholehearted worship, authentic community, passionate service, and courageous witness. And so over these eight weeks, we're just taking those in turn taking two Sundays devoted to talk about each of those. The first Sunday, just to kind of talk about that value in, in a more general sense, and then the follow-up Sunday to talk in a more detailed, practical way about how we can live that out here in our own church. And so this morning, we want to begin talking about authentic community. Because our mission is to express new life to one another. And you know, those words, one another, are words we see an awful lot in the New Testament. There are a lot of one another's. Depending how you count them, there's anywhere between like 56, 59 references to one another. There's a lot of things we are supposed to be to one another as the church. In Romans 12, verse 10, we have a verse that says, be devoted to one another in love. There's one of them. That's a good summation, I think, of our, 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 our statement in our mission that we are to express new life to one another. Here's another way of saying it. Be devoted to one another in love. What does that look like? How do we do that? And I think it's by doing all the other one another's that we find in the scriptures. There are a lot of them. Love one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Be like-minded towards one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Submit to one another. Consider yourselves better than others. Look to the interests of one another. Bear with one another. Teach one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, stir up one another to love, show hospitality to one another. 
Employ the gifts that God has given you to benefit one another. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. Thank you. <clears throat> easy to say, maybe not quite as easy to do. So, so that, that, that's, that's not all of them. This is what the Bible says we are to be to one another. Expressing new life in Christ. And so for those people, and, and maybe, you know, if you're honest, maybe you're kind of one of them, or maybe you've talked with them. People that say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I just don't need the church. All I need is God. It's all I need. Well, you can't one another without one another. God has called us into community. The church at its very essence is community. There was one one another there that just jumped out. I mean, I, I like the way it says it in the, the English Standard Version, the ESV Version. It, it's Romans 15, 7. Throw the words up on the screen there. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I read that and that just kind of struck me. And I never really thought on those words so much. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What does that mean? If it only said welcome one another, uh, you might just think, well, what that means is I open the door at church and I say welcome. And I'm kind. You might think it means to treat people as guests. You invite them over to your house if you're a hospitable sort of person and you even make dessert. And around 8.45, you start to look at your clock and wonder when they're going to go. Right? And then they go, and you were a good host to guests. That might be what you hear when you hear the words, welcome one another. But Paul didn't just say, welcome one another. He said, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So what does that mean? How has Christ welcomed us? So we're going to think about Christ's welcome in two different ways. I want us to think about what he welcomed us into and where he met us to extend that welcome. First of all, where he welcomed us into. Where did Jesus bring us? And the short answer is Jesus brought us into family with God. You, you see this language of family all over the place with reference to our relationship now with God through Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 12 says this, familiar words to many of us, yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to become, say it, children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or husband's will, but children born of God. Jesus, we don't have a right to call God Father. We don't have a right to His acceptance, to fellowship with Him, to His approval or His favor or His blessing. But Jesus has secured all of that. He has given to us the right, to all who have believed in Him, the right now to be children of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Those next verses... Uh, it says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, through, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their faith perfect through what Jesus suffered. For the one who makes people holy and those who are being made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them, what? Brothers and sisters. We are children 
of God the Father. Jesus calls us brother and sister. The last verse, Matthew chapter 12, and we could go through so many more. Jesus' biological family came to him. He was with uh, his disciples. Someone said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to speak with you. Jesus replied to them, who is my brother and who are my, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, uh, is my brother and sister and mother, right? That's a pretty incredible statement. Jesus saying, these are my family. These are my family. What did it mean for Christ to welcome us? Well, Christ has welcomed us through what all that He has done for us in leaving that throne where He had perfect communion. Think of that. Perfect fellowship with God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit for all eternity past, all eternity future. Perfect communion. Perfect fellowship. He left that. He came and He took on flesh. He became human in every way so that He could die on that cross and bear our sin and shame and in His resurrection overcome the power of death and make a way for us to be reconciled to God, to come into the family of God, to share the same relationship with God, that same fellowship and communion and inclusion and love and care that He Himself experiences with His Father. Jesus welcomes us as family. And so when we believe upon Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and repent of our sins and trust our life to Him, the promise of God is that He gives His Spirit to dwell within us, a spirit that Paul would say in Romans 8, it's not a spirit of fear, but it's a spirit of sonship by which we can now cry, Abba, Father. Abba was just, you know, the Aramaic word that a little child would say to a father. An intimate word, Daddy, Abba, Father. Now by the Spirit that God has actually given to us to dwell within us, He communes with us and we can commune with Him. Just as Jesus has communion with His Father. Jesus welcomes us as family. That's pretty incredible. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. You know, the church is not a place. It's not a building. The church is not a time of the week. The church is not a program or an activity. The church is a community. And maybe a better way of saying it, a more biblical way of saying it, is the church is a family. Because over and over again, it talks about the church as the family of God, the church as God's household, where everyone in it has fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and children, where everyone belongs is a part where everyone is seen, where everyone is cared for, where everyone is loved, where everyone is known, where everybody has the care of family. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 28 to 30, now Peter, he's kind of, I don't know if he's frustrated, that he's given up a lot to follow Jesus. And maybe you know. Maybe you've given up things to follow Jesus. It comes at a cost to follow Jesus Christ. You lose some things. And, and, and for us, maybe not as much as many in the world who, who, who have lost safety, some of whom have lost possessions or maybe a reputation or jobs to follow Jesus Christ. So Peter, he says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And, and this is very interesting. Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive. You can advance that there, Christian. 
will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. In what present age? Don't worry, you're going to get it in heaven. Everything you gave up, don't worry. Jewels, mansions, it's all up there. Hang in there. Well, he gets to that at the end, and you're going to get it in the age to come, eternal life. Hey, Peter, you're not going to fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present life. What do you mean by that? Hundreds of homes, hundreds of brothers, hundreds of sisters, hundreds of mothers, hundreds of children, hundreds of fields. Notably, he didn't say hundreds of wives, so I guess that's where Jesus draws the line, right? What is he getting at? He's talking about when you follow me, I'm bringing you into a family. A big family. So that homes, it's not, I'm sorry to report, it's not like, um, you know, it's not the ski chalet up at Lake Tahoe and then your primary residence and then it's that winter place down in in Phoenix. It's not what he says. I'm going to give you many homes. He's talking about your home and your home and your home, your home, your home, your home, your home, your home. Our homes. Some of us as a family. That's what God calls us to be as the church. Not a place, not a time, not a program, a family. You know, this week I, I have a propensity to do things on my own. I have a propensity to, when things are hard, just to kind of turn inward and try to muster the strength, try to muster the, the wisdom and to be sufficient in myself. I have that bent. This week I was entering a meeting where I just kind of felt, I don't know, I felt weak. And, and I did something that I just don't often do. And afterwards I was realizing, mate, why don't I do this more? I just called two people and said, would you be with me? Would you be with me here? What do you want us to do? Nothing. I just feel like maybe I need others. And I came and, and two other people sat with me and, and in this meeting and I walked away from there and in, the, in that time and afterwards feeling lighter than I have in a long time. I'm like, why do I feel different? Oh, it's because I stopped trying to be alone. For once I stopped trying to be alone, I feel different. I feel lighter. Maybe I need to learn. I talked to someone this week. I don't know if she's in the room. Allison Emmer, do you know her? And you know Paul's not doing so well, right? Eight kids at home. And I saw her this week and just asked her how she was doing. And she talked about, you know, she has no family. He has no family. Well, she has a mom in Ontario. Um, she's talking about her mom. Um, might come out in the future, but, but they don't really have anybody here. And I thought, we are a family. We need to be a family for people like this. And I said, is there anything that we can do? And um, she talked about laundry. There's eight kids, and, and there's her husband in the basement who doesn't have a lot of time left. My life is crazy. And she said, laundry? Um, maybe help with some food. 
and I know that they're not, they're not quick to ask for help or to voice that. So as it comes to my mind, Monica over here in this comfy chair has, has been soldiering on leading our, our meals ministry team to help meals, and, and she's going through her own health stuff and can't quite do that. So she called me last week and said, I'm willing to help somebody for a season, but right now I just can't organize that. Rusty, we just need someone else to kind of step into that for a time, and I'll help them. So I'm just throwing that out there. Because I just heard from Allison again, and I'm trying to think of the position she's in. Going, She has no family. We are all she's got. The church as family goes way beyond the Sunday morning service. But, but if we really think of the church as family as we ought to, um, it should cause us to reimagine how church, even what we do here, is not just a time to hear a sermon or to connect with friends, but as an opportunity to welcome others as the Lord has welcomed us. You know, I was talking with someone a few weeks ago, a young woman who uh, came into this church for the first time, I don't know, two months ago? And, and at the Welcome Center a few weeks ago, I just said to her, tell me your story. Like, who are you? And she said, uh, she got a little emotional, and she said, I've been, um, I've been wanting to come to this church for a whole year. I felt like I wanted to come. And I, I've been mustering up the courage to come for a whole year. And I see her come every week. And um, I see her by herself. You know, being a, welcoming as, as Jesus welcomed us doesn't just mean opening up a door and saying welcome. Um, there, there are people in our church who are lonely, and some of that loneliness comes from singleness. Maybe because they do not share life with a partner, or maybe because they do, but that partner does not share Jesus with them. And so they're here alone. And after this message in the foyer, I had someone who I saw up in the balcony and I was thinking about as I was preaching, who I often see up there and is almost always sitting all by herself. And she came after the foyer, uh, after, and she, she came to me and, and she, she was honest. She said, Rusty, I feel desperately alone in this church. A husband who doesn't share her faith doesn't come with her. She comes all by herself and sits in that chair all by herself week after week, and it's hard, and she feels alone. You know, we can talk about reaching the world and forget to reach the person in the robe in front of us and behind us. To care for them. And that's easy to do because when I preach, just to give you a little heads up, if you, if you want to be outside of my gaze when I preach, sit right here. <laughs> Some of you, you think you're being smart by sitting in the back. You ain't being smart. Mm-mm. No, that's where I see you. But up here, was, was Alistair in church? I don't know, Rusty, he was in the front row. Oh, I don't see people in the front row. Okay, I see to the back, right? Um, some of us, that's just kind of how we live life, right? And it's easy as a church, the world, the world, tall nations, the community, Stonewall, beyond. What about here? What about us? Let's not look past one another as we try to welcome one another in from the outside in here, which we ought to do as well. But as I was working on the message this week, I read uh, something that, I just never thought about this, what this could look like to be a welcoming church. So I share it with you, not to make you feel guilty for sitting with your family when you come to church, because I like to sit with my family, and I think that's a good thing. But I'd never thought about this. 
written by a woman. She said, one way in which my husband and I try to live this out, this, this welcome of Christ, live that out, is by not sitting next to one another when we go to church. This cuts against the grain of Christian culture. I'm deeply thankful that I'm married to a man who loves the Lord and comes to church with, with me each week. But I feel close to him at church because we don't sit next to one another. Instead, we both seek out newcomers or those who haven't come to church with spouses at their side. This gives us opportunities to welcome and connect with other siblings in the Lord. If you were raised in church, the chances are that you were raised with the strong expectation that a husband and a wife should sit with one another in the service. And don't get me wrong, that's a beautiful thing and not a wrong thing. Most likely, if you grew up in a single-parent family or in a household where only one parent went to church, your church-going parent felt the weight of this as she or he walked into church each week and looked around at all the married couples. When I've suggested publicly that other married Christians might rethink their default setting, it's provoked two strong reactions. On the one hand, I've, been, I've seen blistering critiques from those who think I'm undermining marriage in the Christian family. On the other, I've received a host of messages from single Christians saying that they feel profoundly lonely when they come to church. The most recent example was this text from a friend who used to attend a church before she moved. She said, I just read your post about why you don't sit with your husband at church. It brought me to tears because as a single woman, I've, I've struggled with feeling lonely and excluded in church my entire adult life. This beloved sister in Christ is in her mid-40s and described herself as never married, wants to be married, but beginning to feel that singleness is just God's cross for her. She's highly educated, socially skilled, a spiritually mature believer. In other words, she has far fewer barriers to inclusion in most churches in our area than uh, many showing up in church alone. And yet, when she comes to church, she feels lonely and excluded. Hmm. She talks about another guy named Sam she knows. Sam is a single man who was guest preaching in a church. Before the service, Sam sat down by himself but then a couple asked if they could join him. Sam said, yes, of course. To his surprise, instead of sitting to one side of him, they each sat next to him on either side of him. <laughs> Maybe that would weird people out. I don't know. Maybe you don't want that. Maybe ask before you do that, okay? Um, Sam noticed how different that felt. He wasn't being tacked onto their family. He was being enfolded into it. Small things like this can make a massive difference. What would it look like for us to welcome people here as family the way that Christ has welcomed us? So I'm not saying you need to stop sitting with your spouse if you have one. But maybe, maybe you want to rethink what it looks like for you to come here and, and how you can be the welcome of Jesus to those who may be alone or lonely. And there are people in this church who are alone and lonely. Church as community, as family, is a powerful witness to the world. You know, when we come to church on Sunday, we don't just come with our family, but we come, we come to our family. Let me say that again. When we come to church on Sunday, we don't just come with our family, but we come to our family. What would it look like if that was true. If we came here with that mindset, if we live with that mindset, Jesus says that when the, when, the church, when the church is a family, this community, it's a powerful witness to the world. He said in his final prayer, John chapter 17, verse 20 to 23, he said, my prayer is not for them alone, that is his, you know, his 12 disciples, those that were physically present with him. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. 
that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. We are in them. We are in God. We have, we, have, we have communion and fellowship with God so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory if you want, that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. Jesus is talking about this communion that we have with him and therefore we are to have with one another so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When will the world know? When they see the church is family. When they see the church as a solution to this deep loneliness that they feel and this need for care. You know, the church, I think it grew in, in those early years, not just because the, the gospel was preached about this God who became a man who died on a cross in a place that many of them had never heard of. What a strange message. Some people, I think they believed because they saw the church transform. They saw this radical love, this radical community here that they saw nowhere else, where people loved one another, where everybody received the same care, where everyone was seen. Young, old, men, women, poor, rich, Jew, Gentile, slave, master, it didn't matter. Everyone there was one family. Acts chapter 4 says the grace of God was so powerfully at work among the church that there were no needy people among them. And the world saw this. And when they saw it, what happened is what Jesus said would happen. It caused them to believe in Jesus. Our oneness is our witness. And I've said that before. Our oneness is our powerful witness to the world. So God, Jesus has welcomed us into family with God. And so we are to welcome one another as family with ourselves. So what does it mean to welcome one another as Christ welcomed us? Well, we talked about how, what he welcomed us into, family. Uh, where, where did he welcome us from? Where did he meet us? And the answer is where we were. Jesus met us where we were. Hebrews chapter 2, in our sin and in our shame. Hebrews 2 verses Verses 14, Jesus was not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Verse 14, since, since the children, that is us, have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity. He shared in our humanity. Verse 17, he was made like us in every way, fully human in every way, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being suffered. Who suffered? Jesus welcomed us by leaving his glory, his throne, his perfect communion with his Father, and he came and he took on flesh and he shared in humanity. He shared in our weakness. He met us where we were. Jesus was not ashamed to identify with us. I think that's such a beautiful statement. Like, God is not ashamed of you. And maybe some of you, you need to hear that in the room. God is not ashamed of you. God calls you to leave your sin. God calls you to grow in love. 
And by his spirit, by his word, he empowers you to do that. But Jesus, Jesus is not ashamed to call us, even brothers and sisters, to identify with us. You know, if we go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, God makes the man and he makes the woman, he makes marriage, and what, is, what does it say? They were naked and felt no shame. I don't think he's just talking about physical shame, right? Like the stretch marks and the extra rolls that are there, like they could just you know, be in their birthday suit and they were totally uncomfortable in one another's presence. It's not just talking about a physical nakedness and absence of shame. It's talking about a complete ability to be real. To be real, to be who one really is. To be emotionally vulnerable, emotionally naked and to know that you are accepted. You will not be rejected. What an awesome thing that is to feel that sort of communion. And then the man and the woman sinned. And what happened? Just verses later. They took the apple and they ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Sin, sin brought shame. And as soon as sin entered the world and entered their lives, they, that shame caused them to hide themselves. All of a sudden they were inadequate. And, and, and how they might be received by the other. Would they be rejected by the other? And so they hid themselves from one another by covering their nakedness. with leaves. There's, there's this interruption in community is what we're supposed to see here. Sin brings interruption in community to hide ourselves from one another. And not just from one another, but from God, right? Because in the next verse, it says God is walking uh, in the garden as He always did in fellowship with those He has made. But where are they? And He calls out, Adam, where are you? Um, and Adam said, I heard you were in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. They covered themselves, their shame. You know, um, during COVID, we, we had, do you remember that, wearing masks? Having to do that in church and other places? Um, and whatever you think of the efficacy of masks, we all learned that word, effic- I didn't even know the word efficacy before COVID. Uh, that's beside the point. There were real consequences on a relational level, right? To, to having a mask in your face. And so, man, it was so hard for me to preach up here to see all of you with masks. Were you happy? Were you mad? Were you having fun? Were you bored out of your mind? Were you yawning? Were you laughing? I had absolutely no idea. It was the spookiest experience. I didn't like it. And, and maybe like you were in meetings with people that wore a mask and maybe you're talking about some deep things, but you just couldn't get a reading, right? Because this thing hid. It hid who you really were because the face shows. And so I was so happy to be free of the, uh, you know, that obstruction to community and authenticity. But you know what? People still wear masks, right? Maybe not masks on their face, but people still wear masks on their heart to hide their shame. A lot of people are afraid of showing the real you. What would people think? What would people feel if they really saw, if they really knew? So let me put on these leaves. But the gospel, God's plan in the gospel is to undo what sin did. It's to fix what sin broke. It's to restore 
right? To, to be able to, to bring us back into a fellowship with one another and with God where those leaves can come off and we can have true, authentic community and we don't have to worry about how people might think or how we might be received or rejected uh, about our doubts or our fears or anxieties or our emotions. But we can be our true, authentic self. Jesus was not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And so I know that there's people, it's easy to walk in here uh, masked. When we're asked the question, hey, how's, it, how's it going? And to reflexively say, it's all good. And I'm not saying that you should tell every single person. Bear your soul to every person. We're going to talk more next week about how we can kind of live authentic community out in practice. But church is not a place to put on your Sunday best. What a, what a corrosive idea that we, have to, we, that we ought to come here in a way other than actually, actually as we are. Right? Authentic community means you come as you are and you are accepted as you are. And this is a place where, where your emotions and your doubts and your fears and your anxieties and all of those things can be ministered to. Can be brought out. This is to be a place where the leaves can come off. And if there's any place where a person can be authentic, ought it not to be the church? Those who know the welcome of Jesus? Those who've been radically included and commune with God in spite of everything they were, in spite of everything they are? The church is to be the place of authentic community. It's the place to get naked. That's what I wanted to title this sermon, Get Naked. <laughs> but the board said, no. <laughs> Rusty, you might have lawsuits. You might have people coming into church without clothes on. And I said, okay. Get it. Um, the church is the place to get naked. Right? Jesus welcomed us right from where we were, um, so that we could get naked. To resolve the fig leaves that cover our sin, that cover our shame, that cover our doubt, that cover our fear, that cover our anxieties, that separate us from authentic community. The church is to be the place where we can get naked. It is to be that safe place. It is to be that family where we can be uh, where we, 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 we can be who we are. We can be honest and open about what's inside. You know, people want to be naked. And at this point, I'm just trying to see how many times I can use the word naked. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you know, people are, def are desperately looking for places where they can get naked. We live in a world full of lonely people, and there are lonely people in this church, and if that's the case, that's not right, because we are called to be a place of authentic community, where people can be known as they are, where people can be loved as they are, where people can be cared for as they are, welcomed as they are, and be transformed by God. 
If there's any place where that ought to be the case, that should be the church because we are those who know the welcome of God. Next week, we're going to talk about authentic community, kind of what that looks like in practice. Um, But I just want you to leave here with um, just that strong, you know, that strong picture and strong sense that we are called to be family. So that when you think of church, you don't think of a place or a time or an activity. You don't think of friends even. You think family. That's the first word that comes to your mind. Family. And we can be better at this. But I just want you to know, if you're someone that feels like you, you're, you're a wearing a mask, that you need to wear a mask, you feel alone here, what we want is we want for this place to be a place where you can have family. And we want to get better at that. So we'll talk more about that next week. But uh, just one final statement for you to take home. Just maybe to put it this way, we are to be Christ to one another and see Christ in one another. We are to be these two things as, as those who have been welcomed by Christ and welcome one another you know, Jesus said in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And he doesn't mean, hey, someone has half of the heart, the other person has half of the heart of Jesus. And when those two people get together, they put their hearts together. There's Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you only have a piece of Jesus. What he's saying is that we were, we were created for community, we're called for community, and when, when people do community together, the, 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 the presence of God is made manifest in powerful ways because God uses community to shape us, to strengthen us, to grow us. We were created for that. We are called to that as His people. We are to be Christ to one another and we are to see Christ in one another. The, fo- the final words I just want to read here are the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 where He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him. And of course, He's talking now of Himself. And he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you before the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or a prisoner and go and visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did to one of the least of these is maybe how you've heard it, you've done for me. And the least of these, they're not the poor starving kids in Africa. They need help too. They're not the the dogs that need to be adopted on the Humane Society commercial with Sarah McLaughlin saying, I will remember you. In the Gospel of Matthew, the least of these is always the way Jesus talks about his family, his disciples. And it's quite an incredible statement. Whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. Jesus identifies so closely with his people because they are his. They are his family. That when we 
um, when we care for his family, we are caring for him. We are caring for him. We commune with Christ by communing with his brothers and sisters. We care for Christ by caring for his brothers and sisters. So what would that look like for us to live as if the church was, was family? And so this is the question for you to take home. I want you to pray over it. I want you to ponder it. If you're with a family or friends over the lunch table, I want you to talk about this question. What would it look like for you to live this out? To live as if the church was your family. For the church is the place where loneliness should go to die. Let's pray. Father, we don't take for granted that we can call you Father. Many call you God, many call you Master, many call you Creator. And you are all of those things, but for us, you are more than those things. You are Father, and we are your sons and your daughters, not because of who we are, but because of what Jesus has done for us, how he has, through his life and his death and his resurrection, and through our faith in him, we have received this incredible relationship with you. We have been welcomed by you, God, um, to commune with you now and forever. We just thank you, God, for this relationship, this fellowship that we have with you um, that we are now called to give to others. Would you just show us, God, what it looks like for us to be a family, not a people that just come and sing songs and uh, chat with friends in a circle in the foyer and do those sort of things and go to Bible studies. But Lord, there are people in this room and there are people in this community that are desperately lonely and people that feel that they need to wear fig leaves and people that have nobody to talk to, and people that don't know if they matter. So God, would you just show us as individuals, would you show us as a church how we can be what you have called us to be, an authentic community, your family. And in doing so, bring you much praise and glory. In your son's name we pray, amen.